Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with the Brazilian architect Carla Yasaba, who over the past two decades has made a name for herself with a slew of elegant residential projects. But it was really her design for the Humanidad Pavilion in Rio in 2012 that gained her international recognition. It was this giant temporary structure for a United Nations organized conference on sustainable development, which was reminiscent of Cedric Price and John Littlewood's Fun Palace and consisted primarily of recycled scaffolding, suspending a series of meeting and exhibition spaces, all linked together by a public path. The project earned her the inaugural Arc Vision Prize for Women in Architecture, and since then her work has included a range of more personal and small-scale projects, including a proposal for Brazil's first cancer hospice in Rio, and an outdoor chapel structure she designed for the 2018 Vatican Pavilion and the Venice Architecture Biennale. I met with Carla in early May of 2022, We spoke over Zoom and talked about, among other things, the blurred boundaries in her work between art and architecture, and the ways in which theater and scenography have changed her understanding of architecture's symbolic potential. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. I wanted to start by talking about or understanding your relationship to art. I read that your grandmother was an artist. And I wondered if you could start by just talking about your relationship to her and her artwork and as a child, your understanding of what it was that she did and how that maybe informed your own interest in a kind of artistic practice. Well, first, uh, it was fascinating to see a woman uh, making things, you know, like really, it was really like a, an action, a woman working with, I seventy years old, eighty, so I saw many ages, but that was that was for me already something um, uh, fascinating to see this energy, you know, that uh, that you need to put uh, to to develop a work, and 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 uh, of course she had a fantastic library, so I could get this fantastic library of architecture and and art. Do you remember what kind of books? she had or the ones that you were reading through? She had all the collection of domus from the 50s, 60s. She had all the, also, um, everything about modern art, beautiful books. And for for that moment, it was already a lot to have this, and, you know, access to this mm. in the north of Brazil that, that you don't have even a, at that time... Uh, a library to go to have this, but she had herself. So. Mm. so she was kind of like a gateway for you into the world of 
yes. art and architecture. Yeah, for sure, yeah. And uh, I mean, you you started more in the realm of installation design or exhibition design. Is that right? I, I uh, as a student, I decided not to work with architecture. I was thought, I was looking for something else, maybe stage design or. And then I and then I started to work for Gisela Magalhães, that was a woman, uh, an architect in Brazil that worked with Vascania Maia, and she uh, was the first, uh, I would say, exhibition designer in Brazil to do uh, to do works in historical museums. So I worked for as a student for three years with her, and I thought I would go would continue to work only in this area of or stage mm. design or exhibition design. I also, as a student, I did um, a workshop with Jean Guillecat, the scenographer of uh, Peter Brook in Rio, but it was open more for uh, students of theatre, but I I, uh, I was there, I think, the only architect doing this workshop. I think Jean Guillecat still does these this, uh, workshops around the world. Then I with this with this workshop, I think I try I began to see our discipline through another discipline, through to the work of Peter Brook and how he uh, changes, uh, he doesn't abs- never accept the, t- the theatres as it is, so he changes the architecture, um, uh, archi- um, uh, he, he viewed for many years um, theatre over theatres, you know, traditional theatres, he viewed another theatre over. I feel like I need to understand what that means a little more. Theater over theater. Yes, theater over theater. I don't know. That's not the, the, the best way to explain. But he, he really did entirely change the architecture of the theater, putting the stage in another place, changing the relationship of people with this stage, returning to the Elizabethan theater in a way where people are really close to the involving, involved inside the scenario. So he did that in older uh, older theaters. He did that in Zurich. They did uh, occupied places of the city, unexpected. So they, they, it is a group that begin to do this. But yeah. also everything they want is a, another relationship with the public. So for that they changed the the, the architecture. So the, and then uh, and then the scenography he did inside. This, after after all these changes, the scenography he did inside was was enough to, uh, I mean, with, with really almost nothing, because mm. what is necessary for him was architecture. So that's why I was very uh, fascinated by, first, how critic he was of architects. Really? He never accepted the theatres as they are. And, uh, and uh, after that, uh, understanding his uh, gestures with sonography that was... Um, enough to communicate what he wanted. So it, it is a mix of scenography and, and the theatrical spaces together that is only one thing, it's not a stage separated, you know, it's, mm. everything is mm. only one thing. And then, I and um, well, there's a, the, there's a book, An Open Circle of uh, Jean Guillecat, his scenographer, that is, you have all these interventions in the oldest theaters of Europe and Latin America and United States. So I'm interested in trying to understand where this, what sounds like early interest in stage design and scenography 
first manifest. It sounds like this is what you were studying before architecture, and this is what you were drawn to as a kind of nascent designer yourself. And it sounds like even before you were aware of figures like Peter Brook, who for listeners aren't familiar as a, a celebrated um, theater director, uh, I think originally from the UK, but is now living in France, um, or, his, or his scenographer, uh, Delacarte. Before you were aware of these figures, it sounds like there was a, some kind of attraction to scenography and to, to the world of theater. And can you tell me more where that attraction came from? Is it possible to, to start to articulate um, on a fundamental level why the world of theater uh, was so compelling to you? For this idea of impermanence that you have and that things end, you know, and, and uh, you cannot, you can, it's not even possible to record because theater you cannot record. You know? So it, it is very fascinating to see things just uh, dissipating, you know? <laughs> just that, mm-hmm. and then that's it. You cannot uh, see again, you cannot. Uh, and mm-hmm. also, uh, when I begin with Gisela Bagalens in the stage, uh, the stage, no, in the, the um, exhibition designs, I was already fascinated by this, um, this temporary uh, effect also on people and how things get in, the, in their mind forever. It's temporary, but it's, it's, uh, it's part of our imaginary world, no? even, if, even if, when it ends. No? Uh, the, the Pavilion of Humanidade, I think, in Rio, is, it's really part of every, everyone's, um, uh, not memory only, but of, of, of the imaginary in this place, in this mm. uh, experience. It is an experience. No? That's, exactly, that's exactly where I wanted to go. I mean, it, it seems like such a logical project to talk about in relation to this idea of transience that you're describing in theater. And so for listeners who aren't familiar, the Pavilion Humanidad was a temporary pavilion for the United Nations Conference on Sustainability that was held in Rio in 2012. And this was a project that for you really brought your work to an international audience. It was, it was a spectacular vision of a project, this temporary, massive scaffold structure that only lasted for, what, two weeks? It was only two weeks, yes, because it was only the, 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 the time of the event. And yet, as you say, it has this kind of indelible mark on the imagination. It's a project that does live on as a kind of fantasy, much in the same way that a project that's been likened to um, Cedric Price and uh, Joan Littlewood's Fun Palace. Mm-hmm. Again, the Fun Palace didn't even exist to begin yes. with, and yet it has a kind of permanence in the architect's imagination. And again, has a strong relationship to theater. I mean, Joan Littlewood, as many listeners will know, mm-hmm. was herself a theater director and instrumental in, in conceiving of the Fun Palace itself. Mm-hmm. But can we talk a little more about the Pavilion Humanidad, how it was conceived, mm-hmm. and in collaboration with who exactly? I know mm-hmm. there, was, there was a theater director involved in the conception of the Pavilion. Curiously, yes, as, the, as well as the Fun Palace now had mm-hmm. this uh, particip- uh, collaboration with uh, the theater director. She, her name is Bielesa. 
she um, she does uh, she's a theatre director, but she does a lot of exhibition designs too. So she was invited at that time to to do an exhibition design about sustainability for the United Nations events, and and she said, I'm not going to do it inside a plastic tent with air conditioning in Copacabana. So. She she thought that uh, the building should re- should be a reflection about about the subject and and she didn't accept this so she she looked for an architect to to it was not a competition it was at the end an invitation to um, uh, to think about this and then we visited and we found the scaffolding covered with plastic and then we just continued what uh, for. Uh, what the scaffolding base that was there with five meters high until twenty five meters high it was there was like a this this um temporary pre existence there <laughs> waiting mm. wait that was profited not all and when you say you found it, this is because in Copacabana there are always events going on right, and there are always these temporary stage sets with these plastic canopies, so it sounds like what you're saying is you've almost taken this found object, and then kind of extended its logic to its extreme and removed the plastic covering. So what you're left with is a giant open framework. Mm-hmm. And I mean, tell me more about the collaboration with Bialissa, the theater director. What kind of conversations were you having? What was her influence on the final outcome? It was a bit like as, as if she was inviting uh, a stage designer for her theater, but it was architecture. <laughs> mm. Then, so it was a collaboration in the sense of uh, we didn't knew the program yet, but we we had an idea that everything could happen. There was only one one precise um, idea that uh, it was made of parallel walls with 170 meters with 25 meters high, and between those parallel walls. There was a public path, a path for the event, so uh, a technical path, but all these paths lead to the same point. It was the roof, so uh, it was very clear that those those paths paths would organize the entire building. The, the name of the med- the building is Humanity Humanity Pavilion. So the center of the building is a library with all the important uh, books. Uh, mm-hmm. mentioned but many many people important in Brazil each one chose a hundred books so it was like a center of of the building the center of the humanity so this was mm-hmm. her idea this is this is all her idea as a program no? so so she as a scenographer as a theater director so I was there as an architect to at the end give form to this but with with the essential idea of architecture that was proposed and Elsewhere, you've described the project as a kind of ready-made. And this description applies to a more recent project that in a way is the, the second iteration of it, which is a, the Ministry for All, which was exhibited at the Storefront for Art and Architecture in 2019. And imagine this kind of lattice work of scaffolding in Brasilia, which also you described as a kind of ready-made. And I'm really interested in your use of that term. It's an art term, an art historical term, um, which was invented by, or conceived first by uh, Duchamp. And it, it just brings, I think, a reading of the architecture into 
into line with art and art history in a way that I wondered if you could talk more about. Why, why for you is it important to understand these temporary structures as ready-mades? So the ready-made of the sham and the principle of ready-made is it's, uh, to find something accidentally, profit of this, transforming something else, and uh, where the, the idea of beauty is not there as a principle, but at the end, the, 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 the wheel is beautiful. There are a lot of incredible objects, but, but he says it's indifferent to beauty. So I think it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, he affirms that, but I, I, at the end, it's, it's not that true because there is a beauty now in the objects. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so I think uh, when I refer to this is in the especially the the ministry for all is when I find a situation in Brazil that if uh, is, is the the parliaments and they are have all the same measure the same high and I had a lot of difficulties to to think about any project in this scale of Brasilia, it's everything uh, is a scale that is hard to reach. And then also I didn't want to affect the, the drawing you know, of Lucio Costa, Oscania Maia, and to be invisible. Uh, I, I, the proposal was to build a, an imaginary building with the same measure, the same height, the same distance between the ministry, except that this one would, make, would be made of scaffolding and it would be uh, a ministry for everyone, um, a place of discussion that we can do an analogy with an agora or something that you no know, people means to, to, to have, I can I can imagine this building. It's not a project. It's an idea of project, uh, but where a stage exists and and and, and can uh, agglomerate many lots of people, and they can enter and go out freely and would be like a mon monument to democracy. In a way, mm. in a moment that democracy is not really happening, so, so it is mm. kind of a political also attitude towards this this strange, uh, fake uh, democracy that we are living. And then I think also the the the, the ready-made returning to the sham, they are not only uh, an object that change means. There is always something um, uh, that wants to to communicate be, uh, besides the object, besides uh, that is uh, a meaning, no? So that's all the, the political meaning behind this is there. And uh, so I think the powerful of the ready-mades and, and is the, is the uh, how meaningful they are. So I think this is, this is, uh, mm. This is the relation I could do, but anyway, I think there is a beauty there. <laughs> anyway, well, not Absolutely. being invisible or it's not invisible; it's a building. So it's true that there's something so satisfying about understanding the working parts of things, understanding the machinery behind a certain phenomenon or feeling or event. And I think with the scaffolding projects, both the uh, Humanidad Pavilion in Rio and then this Unrealized project in Brasilia, there is this attraction to laying, in a way, reality bare. 
<laughs> peeling back the layer, the kind of veneer of the facade, little, quite literally, and understanding how exactly these things are held up and how exactly events occur within them. And that same attitude was applied to the exhibition of the Ministry of All, um, or the Ministry for All, which was shown at the Storefront for Art and Architecture in 2019, where in addition to exhibiting the project, you also started to peel back the layers of this iconic facade of the storefront itself. Many listeners will know it's this, this facade that has many kind of, has these strange cutouts, which are on pivots, so they can um, kind of hinge open and shut and expose the gallery to the street. And what you did is you unscrewed the, the kind of metal finishing and then hung these metal pieces inside the gallery and left the facade exposed to its really haphazard structure so that the image of the gallery frontage now is of this kind of slipshod construction, <laughs> uh, which, the, which the metal facade was concealing previously. And for me, there's a real delight, again, in understanding the inner workings, understanding um, what goes on behind this veneer, behind essentially this mask of a project, um, to get at something that feels somehow more real or more authentic. And I wonder if it's a similar experience that we have when we watch a play or a performance by Peter Brook. And it's just reminding me about when you're talking earlier about the kind of stages that were constructed, stages beyond the standard environment of the theater, stages that are somehow within real environments or real contexts. If maybe there's a similar sensation of being closer somehow to reality um, in those kinds of performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, I will talk about the, um, the concrete panels of the, of the, um, the facade uh, in, in New York, uh, that is this iconic facade, iconic for them, not very... Oh, this are concrete. I thought they were metal. It is like a pre-molded thin plaques of concrete and mix it thin, okay um, mm. and, uh, and the first idea to dismantle the, the uh, I want to dismantle more than, than I did but uh, but Jose Sparza the director didn't want me to I mean to destroy the entire gallery but it was <laughs> there was a moment that was enough otherwise it would uh, not exist anymore and uh, anyways, it is. I was looking also at this moment for an action. This is an action or to remove something and build with that, and you don't need anything else besides what is what is there. And then, and then discover what is discover a bit more about this iconic gallery. And what we found is was this terrible construction at the same time so beautiful because <laughs> we can imagine when it was built how. How improvised it was! You know, when you never knows about it, this was totally improvised, and it's so nice, it's so incredible to find, to discover this, and this imperfection. And then, uh, but at the at the first moment, I was looking for this action that is 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 done there uh, with the material that is there, and and unfolds something and. 
and discover and, and, and build with that. So as the um, uh, the association we could do with the ministry of all, for all is is this uh, first uh, touching this iconic images of the city and transforming with almost nothing you know, and building with with uh, almost nothing and uh, and then uh, Marcelo Cidade the artist that did uh, he took these pieces of the facade and did an installation inside the the, the facade inside was floating. Uh, it's a clear reference to Elio Chesica work, um, Brazilian artist, but it's, it's a literal uh, um, reference, but so beautiful at the same time because he makes what was outside floating inside, and it's a reference, but it's something else too. So yeah, I guess the, the, the hinge now for the question brings us back to the realm of theater mm. and that sensation of a different encounter with reality <laughs> where the inner workings um, of a given situation are exposed um, whereas traditionally they would have been concealed. So basically I just want to learn more about Peter Brooks' work and I want to understand if we can go deeper into your attraction to his work and what, what exactly about it um, has drawn you as an architect to um, developing a PhD project around it? First, first uh, was the fascination about how he modifies the theater space. This is was one thing. What, why, why he was not satisfied with theater spaces, and uh, this was the the the, uh, the first fascination. The second one is the how. He uh, needs, for example, only sand in the in the floor and two pieces of bamboo. That with two pieces of bamboo, he 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 communicates thousands of meaning. He does. with two pieces, he 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 built his entire theater. No, it's a cross, it's a forest, it's a it's a boat mm. with only one, two pieces of bamboo. And I think this was really fascinating. How he how he could find uh, transform. Uh, every second of his theater, the meaning of things with nothing, and so, so it's uh, it's with uh, theater with not so many gestures, but uh, the communications of meanings were, were intense, and 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 I think when I was a student and I saw that I I, I wanted to do architecture, he does his theater, mm. you know, like with gestures that. Uh, you know, it's each gesture in his theater, really gesture or physical or with elements, uh, communicating something. So I, I understand architecture as a gesture too, all the time. This does bring us directly on to your project in Venice as part of the Vatican's first entry into the um, Venice Architecture Biennale in 2018, which is in a way a kind of elemental sculpture. And I know that You've had this debate in the past where people tend to understand your work um, more along the lines of installation art or artwork or sculpture, and you push back. So I wondered if you could, first of all, describe the chapel uh, for the Vatican you designed in Venice in 2018 and, and touch on that tension or discrepancy between a minimalist kind of sculptural project and a bona fide work of architecture. 
Yes, it, it is an, an open-air chapel, so first there's no roof, no, no walls, and it goes uh, very directly to the, uh, the, uh, to the, the sensuality of the program. You go to the chapel to sit at the bench, never comfortable, and look at the cross. So that is the suffering. So it is the, the essence of what you do in a chapel. Then I think uh, the symbols are clearly there, you know, the, 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 the cross, uh, the laid cross, and, the, and, the, uh, and then you, and then the seven elements of, of concrete in the floor that elevates with 12 centimeters, everything has 12 centimeters by 12 centimeters. Uh, the the steel is eight meters each each uh, steel uh, steel beam, and uh, I think those elements of one meter with uh, the seven elements in the floor they are really important for for giving a kind of a measure to this emptiness because it's too empty, and we need this measure. You know this, this so I, I that's the only explanation I can find for. For using mm-hmm. seven, because I don't need to use seven, I could use two, three, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. why seven? And then the, this rhythm, I think it, it, we need to see and to to be, uh, uh, kind of gives like a scale for mm-hmm. us uh, that we need. So and that really helps me understand actually this framing of a piece of work like that as architecture. I think. If someone saw it on its own, I mean, I'm going to try and describe it now. It's this, is it chrome plated or a polished metal? What is the material? Polished uh, um, stainless steel. Polished stainless steel cross upside down, mm-hmm. which then folds into another cross, which is laying on a bed of concrete foundations. And the cross horizontally on these foundations acts as a, as a bench, as you described it, so that the visitor or the user is sitting on this fallen cross and looking up at an inverted cross. And as you've described it, it's in this, it's in this act of prayer or worship. Um, the same kind of act and the same kind of, I guess, situation <laughs> in terms of the discomfort of, of the act of prayer um, that would take place within a chapel itself. So in a way, the program is the same, but the, the space or the form within which it takes place is its most minimal or most reduced version. It's, it's like if you, if you removed any more, you'd have nothing left. And I think this is where I start to understand this idea of nothingness that you've mentioned before in relation to the work of Peter Brook. It starts to kind of come into a clearer view for me, where for you, the architecture is as, as minimal as possible. You're doing as, in a way as little as possible to support as much as possible. And it's the same with the Pavilion Humanidad. It's, it's the, the, the least structure required, I guess, to facilitate this really robust pro- social program. So 
we're kind of teetering on the abyss. We're teetering on nothingness. We're very close to nothingness in these kinds of works that you've done. I'm just conscious as I'm trying to grasp at this and describe it, it's quite abstract. And in a way, it's very holy in the realm still of the conceptual, but in a way that I enjoy and cherish uh, and admire. But I'm also conscious that it's still, it's still the kind of conversation you'd imagine being had in the context of conceptual art. I'm just thinking about this publication by the Cork Street Gallery that came out last year, which was guest edited by the curator Hans Ulrich Obrist, where he, he gathered 30 artists um, and posed his favorite question to them, which is, what is an unrealized project of yours you could tell me about? And he chose you. You're an architect, obviously, but you're in the company of other artists talking about your work in the context of of artistic practice and this kind of conversation that we're having i think it belongs in a way and maybe correct me if i'm wrong but it to me it belongs more in that realm uh the realm of of conceptual art or of of contemporary art and so what i'm wondering is for you how do you see your work developing in this context? Is this something you're, you're comfortable with or are you resistant to this interpretation? Do you want somehow for the work itself to become closer to reality again? I mean, are there housing schemes in the future uh, you'd imagine yourself pursuing? Are there more mundane, kind of everyday, literally real, kind of architectural programs that you'd go after as a designer? Or are you more happy to remain um, in, in the conceptual world? This limit of art and architecture for me, for me is blurred. I don't, mm. I don't, uh, I think it's, I don't, I don't uh, fit in here or there. So I don't, uh, um, I think uh, obviously, um, uh, yeah, I'm fascinated by Marcel Duchamp, but also by the American minimalism. But I think all this is very distant from minimalism because this is, as the theater of Peterburg, full of symbols. So uh, it means that the minimalism is, is completely out of. It's fantastic. I'm fascinated by, by, by that, by, by the American minimalism art, in art. No? But mm. it's absolutely. Uh, an absence of meaning of of symbols, no, not meaning, but symbols, and, and I think the theatre of Peterbrook is done with not absolutely almost no elements, but it's full of symbolism. So symbols and and, and significance. That's so. Uh, so and then then returning to your question of of this this boundary between uh, art and architecture, and yes, I do I do look for programs. 
that are architectural programs, for example, the 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 Ministry for All is a program, in fact, a program. Also, the the, the other question that Hans Ulrich asked me, uh, what would you do between the the Serpentine Pavilion of Oskaniamaya and the landscape design of uh, of Bulemax, Aterro uh, do Flamengo, this park, immense park. So the the question of Hans Ulrich when he was going to rebuild the pavilion of Oscania Maia in in Aterro do Flamengo in Rio de Janeiro to com- to commemorate the 25, 20 years of the Serpentine Gallery. The question was, what would you do between uh, Bulemax and Oscania Maia? And then and then again a return to a, a program, a road architectural program. I could not go. I could do something more. But I never do. I always return. Also, we could build the dream of Bulemax, that is, um, um, a nursery plant. And then in this nursery plant, there is a public space to see the drawings of Bulemax that are always on the floor and no one sees from the top. Only this incredible, uh, this expensive buildings that surrounds. They see this all these drawings of the landscape. So it will, it would be a building to, for the public also to to see this. I mean, it's interesting that Obrist, as a kind of prompt to you, asked you to enter a conversation with two celebrated Brazilian architects, Oscar Niemeyer and Berla Marx, who I guess was a landscape architect. But I just wanted to ask one more question in that context before I let you go, and that is, to what extent is your nationality and your national identity as a Brazilian informing the kind of work you do now how much how important is it to you to understand yourself or position yourself as a brazilian architect given the fact that you're now living and working in london and you're teaching in switzerland um in a way you're a very international practitioner so yeah what is your relationship to your national identity in that context my national identity is part of my education and my contemplation also of this environment that that is real, that is Brazil, and and uh, it is present. It is uh, I'm just uh, floating everywhere, and I'm going to I'm living in London, but I'm going to live in Belgium, and I don't know. I continue to work for Brazil. I continue to be a Brazilian architect, and, and this is this is uh, fortunately I can have work there now. I could not. I mean, could be in another place, but it's there, and I think it's so important to to continue to be there. I don't have to leave there to work, but um, so I think also this. Uh, it's been very rich for me this exchange of uh, in the Swiss University and my PhD in Madrid. All this is enriching environment for me to to continue to reflect about uh, what to do and what to to or what I should do. I'll continue uh, to do working and, and uh, all this has been very, very uh, um, um, a place of research for me, all this. No? So that means it, it's affect, it affects and will affect the work immediately. No? And to be to be far from Brazil is, and look, look have a distance. No? I continue to be Brazilian, but I need this distance for many reasons. It's good for cultural reasons, but it's good 
in this political moment that is in crisis, in the economical crisis, and I don't want to be there. So this this this, this has been very important, and I, I it will, it will be it will last for I don't know how long, but for a little long. <laughs> Carla, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Matthew. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Me too. Scaffold is an Architecture Foundation production. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word, and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Carla Yasaba. Thanks, as always, to Scandalin. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.